Uh, Father, we come before you uh, right now, expectantly, uh, dependently, uh, as your children, knowing that we are those who you love. God, that you love to glorify Christ Jesus in our midst. You love to cause us to be changed by your Spirit, to know him, to look like him. And we just ask that you do something incredible this morning, that you would continue that work to glorify Jesus in our midst, to make us like him. Uh, We depend on you for this to happen, so we ask that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm wondering, as we begin, uh, how you feel about hypocrisy. Good? Bad? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Something in between, maybe? Is it true, though, that there are certain levels to hypocrisy? There are some things where acting in a hypocritical way is worse than maybe in others. At the low level... You know, maybe if I, if I showed a difference in my, my speaking and my actions at the level of being a Canadian, you wouldn't have too much of a problem. If I came up here and said, you know, I'm a diehard Canadian, and you expected me to, to back that up with certain things. But what if I said, oh, I'm a, diehard, I'm a diehard Canadian, but I really don't like to tragically hip. I'm a diehard Canadian, but, but CBC is the worst. I'm a diehard Canadian, but... You know, the Winter Olympics are really a huge waste of money. What if I said, you know, I'm a diehard Canadian, um, but, you know, we really should have more tariffs in our trade with the United States. You might call me a hypocritical Canadian, right, if I said that. Or what what if I joined the ranks of the Vancouver vegan crowd... And I said, guys, you really got to be vegan. I'm spreading the gospel of veganism everywhere I go, right? And then because you know me, you're not surprised when you wander down the street and I'm at some diner and I'm ordering a order of bacon that would make Ron Swanson proud. It's pretty low-level hypocrisy, but what, what if it was more severe than that? What if, what if you guys show up at J.J. Bean after hearing me talk about the gospel and about community and about love and relationships here? at Christ City, and, and I'm there having coffee with my buddy, and I'm just ripping into you guys. And I'm just slandering and gossiping and even maybe spreading some rumors that aren't true. What then? What if when you confronted me about it, I was like, you know what, whatever. You know, kind of slam the door in your face. Get out of here. And that's a different kind of hypocrisy altogether, isn't it? And where am I going with this? Well, What we're going to see today in the book of Galatians is that there is more than one way to deny the gospel. We've already seen a number of ways that we can can deny in our beliefs about it and in our teaching. But Paul's going to show us that not just in our teaching or beliefs, but also we can deny the gospel with our actions. It's very important that we can deny the gospel by our actions, specifically with our actions in our community together as a group of believers. And today, because God loves us, we get to look at a passage of Scripture that's going to confront gospel hypocrisy and confront our own gospel hypocrisy. Because if we're honest, I'll be honest with you, I don't often, I I hope I often do, but I, I don't always, certainly, live out this perfect love that we're part of in the community of Christ with you guys. And I don't think that you guys do it perfectly either. So we need to have the Holy Spirit arrest our hearts and change us this morning to live out the gospel without hypocrisy. So as we pick up from where we left off two weeks ago in the book of Galatians, last week was a kind of one-off message on how we think about our relationship uh, with poverty as a church. 
We're going to take a moment now to orient ourselves to this passage and this context in the book of Galatians. And as we do that, we're going to get uncomfortably close to a conflict. As you read, you just heard Emelina read the words from Galatians 2, 11 to 14. You see this account of one of the most, I think it really is this, one of the most scandalous episodes in the history of the early church. You have the, the Titans, the, the UFC welter or heavyweight championship of the apostles going at it. It's uncomfortable. And reading Galatians 2, 11 to 14, I think it sometimes could be, maybe you could compare it to this. You know, you're at a family reunion, right? And reading this passage would be like wandering in on your paternal grandfather and your maternal grandfather, and they're about to get into some serious fisticuffs. And you're like, oh, the patriarchs are fighting. You know, this, this is a big deal. So if that's the case, why is Paul even narrating these events to us in the first place? Why does he, why does he tell us about it? Doesn't he know the rules of social media that we all follow all the time, where if you have a conflict, you don't put it online? Right? Or why does he employ then the ancient social media medium, the letter? You know, the original scrolling feature was just a scroll, right? It's a bad joke. Dad, dad joke. I'm a dad. I can use dad jokes now. Well, why does he do that? Why does he put this, this confrontation on display for us all? It's a bit jarring, isn't it? Well, if you were here a couple weeks back, maybe you'd remember that Paul launched into a defense of the gospel that he preached back in Galatians chapter 1, 11 and following. And then the rest of chapter 1, and then the beginning of chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10, he kind of adds a couple arguments together to show us that the gospel that he preached was from God. That it was legitimate. That his apostolic authority was real and was legitimate as well. And that all the other apostles together in Jerusalem even agreed that God had given him this ministry and this gospel to declare. And he was doing all of that for a reason. He was doing all of that to protect the Galatian churches from error. Because there were those false teachers that were coming in and were trying to dissuade the Galatian church members from following Paul and believing his gospel and believing that he was an apostle sent from God. And then here, in our passage, in this final narrative episode, before we move on to some other material in Galatians, we see Paul defend his gospel and his authority by this situation. And he airs the details of his conflict with Peter, not to be a malicious gossip, not to be some kind of a slanderous person, but to defend the gospel as he preached it against the danger of hypocritical actions. Defending both the content and the actions of the gospel. So this morning, our outline, it's another three-point outline. You're going to get a lot of those from me. I did go to a Baptist school after all. Gospel conflict, gospel hypocrisy, and gospel implications. And our outline is a little bit different than usual, though, because in that first point, gospel conflict, we're going to cover the entirety of the text. So that's where the whole text is going to be looked at. And then in gospel hypocrisy, we're just going to do a little bit of a deeper dive and see what was the logic here? How is, how is this actually hypocritical? What's the severity of it? How come it deserved a confrontation? And then we're going to follow it up with gospel implications. And each section is going to get a little shorter. So we'll start with a long point, and then we're going to get a shorter and shorter. And the reason we're doing that, the reason we're not having a ton of application today, is that we're going to follow up this message again next week with another message on the same topic. 
We're going to do another one-off message looking specifically at the gospel and former race and former uh, class um, identities in the church. And we're going to do a deep dive into why it matters that we have an identity in Christ Jesus. All right, all that out of the way, let's jump in to our first point and our longest point, gospel conflict. Let's read verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's pretty intense. Look at that first line. But when Cephas came to Antioch, just to be clear, when you see the word Cephas, we're talking about the apostle Peter. Cephas was just his other name that was used often in the church to refer to the apostle Peter. We also need to see that there's a contrast here in this final narrative episode of Paul defending his authority with uh, the one that's, that, that came before, both in its tone and in its location. Because the previous episode that Paul narrated in verses 1 to 10, it took place in Jerusalem, in the heart of the Jewish church, right? And that ended with verse 9 with this handshakes all around, great camaraderie, we all love one another episode in verse 9. Read that with me. This is how it ended. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. It's warm. It's warm. That's agreement. But now in verses 11 to 14 in this episode, the events taking place are not in Jerusalem, they're in Antioch, which is the heart of the Gentile church. It was the birthplace of the Gentile mission, where Paul went out as a missionary to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And the tone is different. The contrast is palpable. I think there should even be a warning, maybe, in your Bibles, that, that uh, you shouldn't read verse 9 to verse 11 very quickly, because you might get whiplash. Right? It's, just, it's just this wild contrast. And Paul just launches into it because the contrast is that he confronts Peter here, right? Warm episode ending verse 9, confrontation now beginning in this one. He just launches in and he says in verse 11, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, for he stood condemned. It's different than the right hand of fellowship that he talked about in verse 9. What's going on here? Why the abrupt confrontation. What was happening? We'll look at verses 12 to 13, and we'll see what Paul tells us. He gives us the reason why. For before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas if you remember, as we've been going through this, Barnabas is Paul's traveling companion, the guy that he did a lot of missionary work with. And even Barnabas goes along, not with Paul standing fast in the implications of the gospel, but going along with the influence that Peter fell under. So the situation is this. What's going on is this situation. When Peter first left Jerusalem, 
after that nice meeting with Paul where there was handshakes all around, back when things were peachy king, he would have been happy to have had lunch and dinner and breakfast and to get together with the Gentiles. And he'd even said in another place in Scripture, before this episode takes place, in Acts um, 10, 28, he'd said about Gentiles, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He'd said, look, I recognize that Gentiles are in, that they're fully accepted, that I can't treat you as second-class citizens, citizens of any kind at all. And Peter would have fellowship at that point with Gentiles because he and Paul and the other apostles, they all understood the gospel. They all understood that being Jewish has nothing to do with whether you're accepted by God or not. It has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with God saving you through your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Being saved then also had everything to do with just trusting Jesus, not by works, not by Jewish works, by trusting in Jesus. And then the logic was this. And if, if Jesus then accepted all people, then shouldn't I accept all the people that Jesus accepts? Right? And the implications for that was that now we have a different way of living together, Jews and Gentiles, in the church. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you would have heard Fred preach how Paul even tested the Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, and John, their loyalty and their commitment to this gospel to a gospel that had the implications that all are accepted to Jesus by faith alone. You know how he tested it? He brought Titus along with him when he went to Jerusalem. He brought the Greek man, Titus, with him and said, all right, Titus, you've got to imagine a pretty awkward conversation here. You're going to be the guinea pig. We're going to see if these apostles are holding to the gospel as delivered by God. So when you come to them, if they don't force you to be circumcised, we'll know that they're, it's good. They're holding fast to the gospel. But if they force you to be circumcised, we'll know that they're capitulating to the gospel. You can imagine how awkward that conversation would have been with Titus. And you can imagine the bravery of Titus to go along with it. But the result was clear. It's in uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. All right, great. Everyone's in agreement. You don't need to be a Jew to be saved. And Gentiles and Jews are fully accepted together by Jesus. That's awesome. But then when we pick the narrative up in verse 11, Paul tells us that, that when Peter first came to Antioch, he lived that gospel out. It was consistent. He was eating with the Gentiles. But then something happened. He's there for a little while, and then these other influences come from James, and they take Peter aside, and they have a little conversation. And then Peter starts to become hard to get a hold of, right? And he starts to churn down the Gentile invitations to the party. Now, I don't know, but maybe it's the case that you've experienced this happen to you. Have you ever had a, a brother or a sister pull away from you in Christ? Or maybe you've had a group of people pull away from you. And it's painful, isn't it? It's painful. We need to stop and think about this for a second because I think contrary to Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow's uncoupling of a relationship, Conscious or otherwise, it's painful. Always. Always painful. I've had this happen to me personally, where I've had close friends that, you know, I'm, I'm pursuing them, we're, we're hanging out, and all of a sudden you get a letter or an email or a phone call. And there's a real division and a pulling away, and you don't really understand why. So you need to put yourself then in the shoes of these Gentile believers in Antioch. How would they have felt when Peter withdrew from fellowship with them? 
can imagine them together learning about Jesus, worshiping Jesus, loving Jesus together, maybe even telling stories about all the wonderful things that God was doing through Peter the Apostle and the other apostles in Jerusalem. Then they get news that, hey, Peter's going to come and visit us. Oh, that's amazing. That's awesome. We'd love to hear the gospel from Peter. You know, hear how he can unpack the scriptures and explain it to us. We've heard that he's a great preacher. And he shows up and he starts talking to them and he's rejoicing with them. And he's worshiping with them that the Holy Spirit is poured out on them and that he's doing incredible work in changing them and and making them alive in Christ Jesus. It's this big, wonderful situation. But then he pulls back. A shadow falls over his face one meeting when James people come and give him a little message. And uh, you say, hey, Peter, you, you're coming tonight, right? You're coming afterwards. We're going to hang out at our house. And he's like, well, no, actually, I'm busy. And you ask him a few more times as the weeks go on. And you keep hearing, well, no, I'm busy. And as we all know, when you've heard, no, I'm busy enough times, you start to wonder at the problems with me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the problem. So Peter withdraws. But the question for us is, if Peter had already understood and embraced the truth of the gospel and its implications, then why did he reverse his practice? Why was he doing this Gentile eating thing, and then why did he pull away? What was really going on? Well, look at the last part of verse 12. This is the reason why. Paul writes, he did this because he was fearing the circumcision party. Because Peter was afraid, he withdrew from fellowship with Gentiles. Afraid of who? Afraid of what? I think Peter was afraid of a certain group called the circumcision party. He was afraid that that this party, this is a party of non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem. And he was falling under their influence because this group of the circumcision party, this non-Christian group of Jews, they were putting, group of Jews, they were putting pressure on Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to stop associating so much with Gentiles. They were defending their nationalism and their religion and saying, look, you Christian Jews are really confusing things. It would be like this. It would be like in Vancouver, if you invited 30 or 40 or 50 people from Boston to start a church, right? And you start hanging out and worshiping with them. But then your non-Christian Vancouverite Canucks fans start to talk to you. And they're like, look, Man, you're missing the game, and you're hanging out with Bostonites, Bostonians. I don't know what you say. People from Boston. You're hanging out with Bruins fans. You can't do that. You've got to pull back. But for these guys, the situation was much worse because as hostile and fun as it is sometimes for the rivalry between Vancouver and Boston, even at the height of that rivalry, things weren't that violent. I mean, we had cars set on fire. Right? We had riots. That was mostly our own doing because we are mad. But the hostilities were much, much worse for these first century Jews and Greeks because this was a period of time when tensions between Jew and Greek were at a boiling point. And if you weren't, and if you were a Christian Jew, or if, if you're looking at, sorry, if you're looking at the, let's back up a second, if you're looking at the arena happening at that time, right, the only place where that hostility was resolved was in the church. Right? So you have Jew and Gentile together here. But if you weren't a Christian, if you weren't a Christian Jew, 
you hated that blurring of the lines. You hated it. And Jewish nationalists called zealots, they were even openly hostile toward perceived threats to Judaism of any kind. Right? So if you were the guy that was getting together with the Gentile, blurring the lines of the Jewish identity, watch out. They might come after you. Right? So why did James Peter tell, what did James people tell Peter then to, uh, to kind of hold back and pull back? What was the logic here? Well, think about it this way. Peter's assigned mission field was to be the apostle to the Jews, was it not? Not to the Gentiles. So maybe James sent these people to remind Peter not to go so far out on the limb of unity in Christ that he compromised his own mission field. You know, you're going to come back home. Maybe you can imagine them saying something like this to Peter. Hey, Peter, look, it's really great that you're hanging out with the Gentiles, but it's causing the non-Christian Jewish nationalists here to get riled up. And they're starting to get pretty angry with us. You're the missionary to those guys, dude. For the sake of the mission to Jewish people, maybe you should step back from the Gentiles, let Paul do his thing over there, and you just focus on the group of people that God sent you to be the missionary to. So Peter pulls back. He separates himself from the Gentiles because he's motivated to protect Jewish believers in Jerusalem from more scrutiny and maybe even to protect his ministry toward them and to allow an inroad to preach the gospel in a way that wouldn't be offensive to them, to those non-Christian Jews. But you know what he's not doing? What he's not doing is acting out of keeping with his own convictions about what the gospel means. What he's not doing is knowing and acting that all men are accepted equally before God through Jesus by faith alone, not by being a Jew. You know, Paul uses the word hypocrisy twice in verse 13 to describe Peter's behavior. Does Peter really believe that that Gentiles are a second-tier class of Christians? No. Does Peter really believe that Jews should separate from Gentiles? No, he doesn't. Does Does he do this for any legitimate reason? No, it's because of hypocrisy. And his hypocrisy has started to put this implicit pressure on the Gentiles then to think that they start to have to level up, right? I got to level up my Christianity. I might be a level two or level three Christian, but that's not good enough for Peter. Maybe I need to become a Jew to be fully accepted, right? So it's an implicit thing, but now you have this thing where they're feeling, I need to become, I need to become a Jew, And Paul, sorry, Peter, by withdrawing, puts that pressure on them. And Paul's not having it. Look at verse 14 in the content of the public confrontation he had with Peter. Paul writes, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to see this before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's a public confrontation. It had to be a public confrontation. You had to say this before everyone because this is a problem in the whole community. This is not something you go and you say, hey, I'm just going to speak to you guys over here and you guys over here. No, this needs to be addressed out front for all to see because Peter was committing gospel hypocrisy of the worst kind. So let's unpack that. Let's unpack that now a little bit in our second point this morning, gospel hypocrisy. See, the issue that Paul was willing to defend to the point of having a very public, and to this day when we read the Bible, somewhat embarrassing conflict with Peter, was that Jesus accepts all who come to him by faith alone. And Paul knows, and 
Peter knows and the rest of the apostles know that to be made right in the eyes of God, you don't become a Jew first. You don't even clean yourself up first. You come to Jesus in faith, trusting that God will accept you through him alone, by his grace alone, and faith in him alone, period. That's it. But what's the logic here? How can it be that a sinner like you or, or me can receive all this grace and blessing from God by trusting in Jesus? The answer to this question is central to what we're talking about here. The answer to this question is central to understanding exactly why it was so hypocritical and wrong for Jews and Gentiles to separate. The answer of how we get grace from God by trusting in Jesus is that we get that, hear this, only by being united with Jesus. This is about union with Jesus. Think about it this way. How many of us, how many human beings deserve to stand in the presence of God? How many of us, how many of you, anybody in this room, deserve to earn the inheritance that God graciously gives Jesus Christ? How many of you deserve to live in this perfect, eternal, incredible relationship with the God of the universe? How many of you have lived a holy and good life to the full? How many of you can bear the full weight of the wrath of God upon your shoulders as a punishment for your sin? How many of us has God looked down upon and smiled and said, this one, this is my son with whom I am well pleased? You know the answer? Only one human being and his name is Jesus. The God-man alone, Jesus Christ, earned all of these things and is able to give them to us. And we have, as Christians, the full measure of all that Jesus has earned. That's ours. But you know how it's ours? Only by being united with him by faith. Our acceptance to God, or by God, is only in that we've been united with Jesus, who is fully accepted by God. The profound truth of the gospel is that this is the case. All those benefits are earned by Jesus and given to us as we are united to him. By union with Jesus, a debt that we owe is paid by the life that we could not live and the punishment that we could not stand under. Through union with him, by union with him, We are loved with the very love that God the Father has for his son, Jesus Christ. But here's the logic of this passage then. If we're all united together with Jesus, that has radical implications for how we live together in this church, doesn't it? And if all of us together are united in the same single Savior to have the salvation that we have, then what place does prejudice have in this church? Then what place does separation have in the church? What place does partiality have in the church? What does it say about first and second and third level Christians in the church? What does it say about Jewish Christians who withdraw and separate themselves from Gentile Christians in the church. All of those things are that all those things are a, a lie about the gospel. All of those actions are an implicit lie about the gospel that we are saved by as we're united with the one Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So look at how Paul talks about this radical, radical unifying implication of the gospel in another book that he wrote, another letter, Ephesians, in chapter 2, 14 to 16. Notice the, the one language here. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, not through multiple bodies, in one body, in the new humanity, the body of Jesus Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We're accepted because we're joined to Jesus. Period. And the radical arithmetic of the gospel then is that one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one equals one in Jesus. As we're all joined together in him for our salvation. As the rich and the poor and the Canadian and the American, as the First Nations and the Dutch, as the hipster and the businessman and the Chinese and the Japanese, and the male and the female and the misfit and the popular, all become one together in Jesus. William Carey was a man who understood this. William Carey is a, a missionary who lived from 1761 to 1834. And William Carey uh, is often referred to as the father of modern missions, the father of the, the time when the church took seriously in the last couple hundred years our role to preach the gospel to all nations. And what William Carey did is he left his home in India, or he left his home in England, and went all the way to India to be a missionary to people there who had not heard the gospel. But you know something interesting about, about William Carey? He refused to baptize anybody in India who did not give up the caste system. You know why? Because Kerry knew the book of Galatians. Because he knew the gospel, and he knew that there are no hierarchical tiers to the Christian life. All of us are equal and even one in Jesus. And Kerry knew that if, if believers in India started acting hypocritically and separating themselves and, and having privileges and attendant suffering because of the caste system in the church, that it would do an incredible damage to the gospel. That it would lie about who Jesus is that they were saved into as one new humanity. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in an Indian church in India where the caste system was still prevalent? What would that look like? Where you have some members that, that can't even be in the same room as other members. That's awful. It'd be horrific and ungodly. The problem with, with Peter is this. As we are all joined together in Jesus who is one, we become one. And Peter's hypocritical actions led to the opposite, led to a separation of the one body of Jesus. And in the words of David De Silva, he said, what was happening was that the image of the one new person in Jesus Christ was defaced in Galatia. That's how serious this is. So, what are the gospel implications of this radical union with Jesus for us today? That's our third point. I'm just going to have a short section here on, on the implications. I know this has been a really heavy explanation, full sermon. Um, I apologize for that. Next week, we're going to follow it up with mostly contemporary application. But how do, we, how do we prepare our hearts to receive that now? How can we walk some of this out really quickly before we end? 
Well, first of all, we can't live hypocritically in our community, can we? Especially in how we interact with one another. But we do. We do it. How many times have you erected barriers in this church or in your own community group even so that you closed off the walls of love and acceptance to people that were different than you? That you don't prefer to be around? And I'm not going to let you off the hook here either. Because I think sometimes we think, you know, I'm really loving and accepting to so-and-so. I just, you know, I just don't pursue them. But you know what Peter says? So clearly Peter learned his lesson because Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says, we must love one another fervently from pure hearts. It kind of doesn't allow for this intangible, I love you, but I, I don't really show it. The problem is that we are way more comfortable, I think, identifying ourselves by lesser identities than by our primary identity, which is in Christ. And when we do that, when that becomes a priority, we create all manner of separations in the church. We do that by simple ways. But what shows we watch? Or what shows we don't watch? Or what culture we're from? Or what food we like? Or whether we are pro-Halloween or whether we aren't? Or whether we're city people or country people? Or whether we're liberals or conservatives? Or whether we're from a certain ethnic background or not? Or by the food that we eat or that we don't eat? Or what we like to wear or what activities we pursue in our day-to-day lives? And we're more comfortable, I think, often identifying with those things than we are sharing our one identity in Jesus. And allowing that to be primary in our hearts and in our lives. And guys, we need to repent of this. More than your close group of friends or your ethnicity or anything else, your identity in Christ has to be the central operating value for you in this church. We're one in him. He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility here between you and between the guy sitting across from you. So what place does your disunity have here? It doesn't belong here. It doesn't even have to be an openly hostile disunity. I think we like to think about those. And that might exist. And if that does exist, if you are hostile towards someone or unforgiving or bitter towards someone here, the Bible compels you to talk with them and to try and resolve that issue. You need to know that. But even if it's not an openly hostile disunity, it might just mean that you separate because you value some identity that you have more than you identify with Jesus and that you overlook people or that you don't prefer certain people or that you passively resist branching out to people that are different. It might just mean that you subtly think of yourself as more important or better in some way than the person next to you. I do that. That's, I mean, my pride is like just under the surface all the time, but that's so disunifying. Maybe you assume that you've got a better job, or maybe just better hair, right? Or maybe, I don't know, an inherently better set of interests than the person next to you because they're different. That's disunifying. And hear this. Our lack of love for one another tells the world something that's a lie. It lies about the gospel in our witness by saying that we're not united by faith in one Savior, Jesus Christ. 
But on the other hand, imagine this. Let's, let's end this positively. What sort of message does it send to the world around us when the integration and the unity and the love here at Christ City Kitsilano are so fervent that it's palpable to everyone walking around who comes into our midst? What message does that send? You know what it sends? It sends a message that, that we are people who've been joined to Jesus. That we are people who have been filled with the Spirit of God. That his love is present in this church. That life has overrun darkness and death. And that the gospel is real. This is missional. This is evidence of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And it's unique. It can't happen any other place. The world's desperate for this and they can't find it. But it can happen in the church. I don't know if you know this, guys, but in Vancouver, there are churches where the former Cambodian torturers worship Jesus together with family members of the tortured. There are churches where murderer and people who are family members of the murdered dwell together in unity because of Jesus. That can happen because of the gospel. There is a radical nature to the unity that God wants to work in our midst to tell the truth about what he's come to do through Jesus in us. So what do you think that's going to look like this week? What's Jesus saying to you now? Maybe he's pressing in in your heart saying, if I've come from heaven above to lay my life down for them, maybe you can reach across the aisle. Maybe you can show your unity and faith in Jesus together. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.